Yeah, Jeremy, have you guys been playing Cyberpunk 2077? Yeah, I just got past the part where um, you meet the Haitian black nationalists and uh, they help you go into the cyber world and you meet AI and then you leave cyber world. Weird, weird, uh, weird plot. Only time you see black people. One of the only times you see black people. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you guys have a PS5? Like, how have you guys been playing? Not the PS4 Pro, um, so it's been struggling, but it's okay. I'm fine with it. The glitches kind of make it fun. It's like, hey, sometimes I can't finish a mission. Sometimes <laughs> I can't find someone. Sometimes they just start shooting at me. Uh, sometimes uh, this dude's smoking a cigarette uh, that is detached from his hand, and he puts it out, and it just stays there for the rest of the convo. You know, these are, it's fun. Uh, Man. I'm- I only have it on an Xbox, so I'm not even. I haven't been able to make it past the character creation part because it just keeps shutting off and restarting. <laughs> you I guys are thing, really living in the future. I, I, yeah. I don't expect to be able to play that game until like sometime in 2022. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you know. Uh, you, you see all these people talking about the, the glitches, and there's so so many wild glitches, but. But hear me out. What if what if the glitches are are actually features and not bugs in the game? You know, it's it's a it's a commentary on the inherent fallibility of these socio-technical systems of control. The cyberpunk future is gonna be here, but it's gonna be shitty and it's gonna be gritty. It's gonna have all these opportunities for hacking the system. It's a Luddite game. It's a Luddite game. That's why they, they, they're teaching us to hate corporations. They're teaching us to hate capitalism. They're teaching us to hate technology, you know, to not trust it. That's the moral of this story. Well, and I mean, in that case, what, uh, what other fictional Luddites do you think exist? You know, there's some of your favorite fictional Luddites out there. You know, I think that even though the characters aren't people to be admired for many reasons or for, or for differing reasons, you know, the cast of Mr. Robot is interesting in that it's a, it's a group of people who are like in one way or another hurt by, you know, these technologies and, these, and the, the tech technologies and then the technical systems and, the, and, and uh, decide to unmake it all. Like, and unmaking is also like in the, in the show, not simply like just destroying it, but rendering it also inoperable, right? They encrypt all the debt records in the world and that renders everything that relies on it and needs to access it inoperable. And that's just gone, you know? Then you can't, like, what are you going to do? And I think, you know, of course, there are lots of consequences to that that unravel in the show, <laughs> you know? But the, uh, the, the, the intentionality there is uh, I think sympathetic to the loop to the Luddite vision, right? My my favorite is the original Mr. Robot, Tyler mm-hmm. Durden. Blow up the bank, <laughs> set everything back to zero. Oh man. <laughs> Hello, comrades. It's episode 29 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. Uh, so I, I feel like building on our, our conversation, kind of like recovering this history of Luddism, what the Luddites actually were, um, what, the, what, what the politics of Luddism was, I want to bring us 
closer to the contemporary time. I feel like we 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 I, we should start off by like making the argument for unmaking, like you know this idea of unmaking as a kind of like contemporary instantiation or contemporary version of of a, of a Luddite ethos. Um, but but you know something that I don't know a kind of like. Uh, a tactic, a political program, a techno-political program that builds on Luddism, but doesn't feel like it has to also be completely and totally um, tied to that particular time in history 200 years ago, right? Like drawing inspiration from it, but not also trying to think like, oh, we need to harken back to that time because we'll never get back to that time, right? Like, right. like uh, you know, th- things are things have advanced. Things have developed. Capital has de- has advanced and developed, and its strategies have. And and I feel like ours ours need to do so uh, in response to capital's own like ramping up of its own militancy, of its own cracking down, of its own ability to uh, enact discipline and domination over. Um, not only over a working class, but even just over any ideas that go outside of um, thinking about innovation and this like particular model, um, thinking about, you know, fetishizing technology, um, you know, the path to progress, quote unquote. I feel like we have to, in turn, in response to that, also um, ramp up our own radical imaginations, but also radical actions. Speech is my hammer, bang the world in the shape, now let it fall. I think, like, as going back to our previous discussion, like, Luddism is not to be yielded uh, uh, to, like, detractors. It's just, like, something about uh, a crazy individual, a technophobe, you know. There's this really uh, interesting essay in the New York Times uh, book review by Thomas Pycon about, like, in the 80s. And he's like, is it okay to be a Luddite? Luddite. And, um, you know, he's, he talks about it and raises a good point that, you know, even if Ned Ludd probably didn't exist, it is interesting to think about how when Ned Ludd was talked about contemporaneously, uh, people did not assign to him the pejoratives of being crazy or angry or like, you know, in one way or another, unaware or intent with what he was doing, right? And that it was a single-minded attack on a machine, a stocking frame that had existed for a long time, but that certain conditions led people to be more cognizant of the damage that it was going to do, right? That even though the stocking frame had existed since like, you know, the late 1500s or 1580s, right? That it was now being used by people who didn't work to put out of work other people and then reap more and more and more and more and more of their wealth and immiserating larger and larger parts of people. And so it was like obviously an existential threat and unfair and, you know, a, a catalyst for resentment and anger and a desire to rectify that. And so unmaking can also be directed at things that have existed for a while, but are now part of a process that uh, may, maybe makes by a finer point, like a process of exploitation or or immiseration, right? Where, you know, there are forms of tech, I, you know, maybe one example is like you can, for example, be opposed to, or you can have problems with trans- with way transportation is done in cities, right? Um, and maybe a process of unmaking might in one point or another called for sabotage. Uh, but 
at certain uh, sabotage of one type of mode of transportation over another, right? But over time, as the society uh, shifts in what mode of transportation, you know, today we're sitting here with uh, a society that's dedicated to worshiping cars and, and making sure that they can access every single avenue of our life. So the unmaking can involve undermining the logic of cars, undermining the mm-hmm. ability of them to move around us freely. It can result, it can be from projects people take up in their cities, you know, legal or illegally to um, displace cars, to replace them, to provide alternatives. The unmaking is, should be thought of as like a, as a wide diverse tool set of options that range all the way from sabotage and resistance to uh, co-option of the political system or infiltration or undermining or involvement in it in one way or another to, through legal means, you know, push out something that we don't want to exist or to be made. Yeah, I like that point because it's like, you know, when when Luddite is thrown around as this derogatory label, like the imagination here is people that like, you don't want like the new iPhone, you know, it's right. like, oh, like, you know, I, I I don't want this new iPhone. I want to go back to my flip phone or, you know, it's, it's always based on this like device level analysis or critique, right? Like this individual thing. Oh, I don't like this individual thing, but the way that you framed it, which I think is right, is thinking about it more in terms of infrastructure and more in terms of capital, Right. Mm-hmm. Like capital is, you know, the fixed machinery of production, the infrastructure that, uh, you know, structures and legislates our world. Like that's that's the target for unmaking. I think that's also what like, you know, that's what the Luddites were doing when they targeted the stocking frames is they were actually targeting capital, the right. like quite literally the machinery of production, the means of production. And, and you know, it's like, I feel like, even talking about unmaking, like like deconstructing, taking apart, throwing away things that already exist in the world, uh, flies in the face of this like constant impulse to just build new stuff, to always, you know, put more layers of things and systems tacked onto and piled on top of the current strata. Uh, you know, it, it's like, yeah, we need we need alternative tech. We need alternative technologies that not only like add on like some kind of mod to the things that already exist. We need them to replace the things that exist. We need and but but the way of like doing that requires taking out of existence those things, unmaking them, right? Like I feel like it's not enough to just look around at the world um, and imagine countless possibilities for constructing, shaping, and interpreting things in some kind of different way, which which I think is where a lot of the impulse for change is kind of based on this like reformism, right? This like, how can we just tweak around the edges? How can we add something new? How can we put new regulations on the books or new laws on the books? You know, it's like, I think we also have to recognize, and this is, this is the Luddite ethos, um, is recognizing the materiality of things as well. Um, and the way that they do, they become stable, they block change, they act like barriers, they stand in the way of anything different. Um, and that's how they're designed to do, right? But, but you can't like, you can only get so far by uh, ignoring uh, all of this concrete stuff or trying to just build around it. Eventually those things have to be taken apart. They have to be cleared away so that new pathways forward can be opened up. 
Yeah, you know, I think about how, you know, one thing that maybe has to be taken from the accelerationist is like this idea about some things just needing to go and to disappear, not necessarily because things have to get worse, but there are like the process, the standard sort of theological process of, you know, gaining power and accumulating power and building and using that power to wipe away things, I think makes sense on some level, but there is still the fact that, you know, as we've talked about in other episodes, you know, elements of our imagination uh, limits of our political horizons. These are things that are all tainted by capitalism as it exists here and now. And piecemeal reforms, uh, even if done in ways where we have power in hand and are striking, you know, at barriers and institutions, uh, is you know might have a limit to it. And I think there's something to be said about destroying institutions, or destroying, or undermining, or resisting things. Um, and ways that are outside of the usual bureaucratic or uh, legislative or regulatory frameworks, right? Uh, our friend um, Lenin, even though he talks shit about my uh, about anarchism, you know, had good points <laughs> about <laughs> had good points about a lot of good points. But one of a very important point I think he makes it w- uh, when he talks about you know illegal and illegal work is this you know the idea that there are things that it just makes. You know, you know what your end goal is, and our end goal in society is state, eventually a stateless class of society, right? And there are ways to get there, a multitude of ways to get there, um, that both, you know, in the moment require engaging with the institutions as they are and figuring out diversity of tactics electorally or you know, organizationally. And then there are other methods that are just like more pressing, but for one reason or another, a law or regulation. Uh, makes them illegal, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jeremy, uh, we were talking about bikey gangs, which in Australia are um, are the uh, that's what they call like the biker gangs, like the drug right. trafficking <laughs> bikey. Yeah, gangs. we need bikey gangs the, for the revolution. The, the, <laughs> Jeremy put in the chat that the bikey gangs are coming for Ed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's like there's some things that will need to go and will have to be resisted but within the current framework of the law are illegal. There are certain types of labor organizing activities that are currently illegal right now, mm-hmm. but the legality is not a measure of the of the morality of it. And the morality of it should always take place uh, or take precedence, right? There are plenty of things that are moral that are illegal. And usually that's because they have things that threaten some compact that labor and capital have, or some demand of capital. And uh, more and more, as we're thinking about bloodism and thinking about ways to realize it, as a praxis in theory, uh, thinking about what laws within what sets make sense, to, what laws within what bounds make sense to break um, mm-hmm. or subvert or undermine or ignore or figure out other ways to whittle away at so they're not a barrier for us anymore. Bringing up the, the question of law is great as well because uh, so much of law is written for, even at times written by, um, the interest of, of of corporations and capital to uh, give them more power over labor, right? Like I'm reading this book right now by Alex Wood called Despotism on Demand. And in this, he's like looking at the workplace regimes of uh, big box store retailers like Walmarts and stuff like that. And one of the things he talks about how is that like 
you know, everything that they do, all this kind of like at will employment, all of their um, insane like managerial control and surveillance, the way that they use like corporate policies and, and labor laws uh, in order to uh, enact this like despotic control over the lives of, of people that work in those companies. Like the, you know, these retailers will be the first one to tell workers what we're doing is within the bounds of the law because they know that the law is a tool for them. And so if we try to, you know, only work within that bounds without changing those laws, without sabotaging them in some way, then we're already on the defensive. We're already on the back foot. I feel like a, a Luddite ethos requires us to think outside beyond those bounds, right? Like, you know, even thinking about like our conversation on antitrust with Marshall Steinbaum, and I like that, you know, he basically laid out uh, kind of like two ways of thinking about antitrust. One is you know, the more popular way right now, which is about competition, right? Like we need to break up these corporations so that we can juice competition in the market. And that's not doing anything. That's purposely by design, like keeping labor outside of it, right? Like, you know, he talked about antitrust and I think a more like Luddite way um, in terms of like, how do we use antitrust in order to undermine the power of corporations and therefore empower the working class, the late, you know, labor, um, so that they can finally start rising up? I think that's a great way of thinking about a legal reform like antitrust, a regulation like antitrust, in a way that is completely consistent with a politics of Luddism. Right. You know, like we oppose Amazon and want to get also uproot it legally and prevent it from reemerging legally. We also want, and we, we assert that right to do that and assert the right for workers if they're in that workplace, given its unsafe conditions, given its close, close surveillance of them to fuck up the machines in any way that's possible, right? You know, I think there's this great piece by Sam Adler-Bell called uh, Surviving Amazon, where he talks about some of these little acts of you know, resistance, where he's referencing, of course, also uh, this memoir uh, by um, Heike Gessler, it's, uh, who worked at a warehouse in 2010 in Germany, right? And she talks about also some of these small acts of resistance, right? Uh, leaving things so that they don't charge properly, hiding products so that they're not in the cycle, damaging them and pretending that they arrived that way or damage them very subtly so they only appear that way to the customer, you know, and that these sorts of things, eventually it all gets found out. But the point of it is, is almost not to like do it without ever getting caught. But that's also to say the point of it is not to get caught. The point of it is to be able to to do it. And as the worker, you know, as someone in that place asserts some autonomy over, you know, mm -hmm. the fact that you have these dehumanizing and without dignity working conditions, but also to put a little bit of a wrench in the machine, right? If that's right. If enough of people, you know, do this who are powerless and, and subjugated, you know, it will not put a massive dent or a dent in Amazon's logistics empire, right? But it does, as we've talked about, is one of those things where people find each other, right? Or people can work together and develop or practice systems and methods and techniques to find each other, to help each other and protect each other.
so that the sabotage can go on as long as they need it to, so that they don't get too badly hurt um, when it's discovered. Um, and also so they can figure out and pass on to other people lessons about uh, how resistance can be done. And even in the face of like this panopticon where everything you do is watched from your movements to whether you pissed or not, to how far you walked, uh, to whether or not you're hitting like some arbitrary quota that um, mm-hmm. some analysts cooked up in a lab. Yeah, the the title of Sam's piece there, uh, Surviving Amazon, I think is really telling because what it shows is that these little acts of resistance, these little acts of sabotage are necessary for just surviving in the workplace, right? For, for carving out some autonomy and dignity, as you put it, and even just carving out time, right? Like take, like having, having the ability to take a five minute breather um, because, you know, like uh, some of the uh, examples are, you know, the little like handheld computers, the little like t- digital tyrants telling people where to go, what to do, judging them, you know, like, you know, at the end of your shift, not putting it fully on the charger dock so that, you know, at the beginning of the next shift, the little computer hasn't been charged up and it dies. And so all you get, like, you know, you get a 10 minute break while a manager has to come and find another little handheld tyrant for you. And, you know, right. all this, like, like those little acts of sabotage are necessary for survival um, mm-hmm. within this kind of uh, this this kind of environment within these kinds of working conditions, and then, you know that that's the kind of stuff that those are the kinds of tactics, the kinds of modes of survival that we have to uh, look to, we have to understand, and you know we have to we have to provide support for them so that survival can then start meaning something more, start meaning something better, start meaning something like not only carving out a a little bit of time to to take a break, but carving out some power within the workplace, within those conditions. Right. You know, because, you know, in that piece, I think a really poignant line was talking about how, you know, some of these strategies, these tricks, as one example, might save uh, one worker and their calves an extra trip across the warehouse, which can be hundreds or thousands of feet. And that can be the difference mm-hmm. between whether you quit that week or whether you quit in after the next paycheck, right? Um, that workers are the high, the turnover rate is extremely high that, you know, after six months, you're considered old guard. So then also like methods of, of expanding the room for people to do these strategies where they can subvert the law and the rules, I, I think also comes in the same breath as expanding their life or improving their livelihood, right? A law or rules or regulations that make it easier for workers to not be fired, make it easier for workers to survive, make it easier for workers to earn a living, are also rules that make it easier for workers to do more resistance, right? Because as long as you're not living on a knife's edge, you have more room and time to you know speak to other people i mean as it is they they communicate in code you know largely because of the surveillance right they're re- deliberately vague about the strategies as uh, sam communicates in the piece but i mean it is i think it makes sense that improving the, the working conditions at these warehouses gives workers more breath and more room to organize in ways that they are not able to Otherwise, right, you know, to organize strikes if they wanted to, uh, to do more uh, acts of sabotage if they wanted to, right, and to escape 
surveillance or to fight against surveillance uh, better if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. All of these things are impossible now, but if they are possible or made possible, then they open up an even wider universe of possibilities for resistance. And they can only be made possible through what we've been talking about as Luddism, right? Like, mm-hmm. like they, they're only, they only feel impossible now because the ability for capital to subjugate workers um, you know, their bodies and their minds, you know, it requires that kind of counterposing force. It requires that an equal and opposite reaction, right? That's a, that's a law of thermodynamics right there, you know? <laughs> and that's what, I feel like that's what Luddism and that's what a, an argument for unmaking offers is going from survival up to seizing the means of innovation, Innovation as this kind of fetish, I feel like, you know, uh, like a whole uh, one of the missions of TMK is to take the gas out of uh, innovation as something that, yeah, is this fetish is considered as uh, inherently good in and of itself. This kind of like incessant need to, as long as you're doing something, anything for the sake of doing it, even if it isn't really all that novel or useful, which a lot of this capitalist innovation is not very novel or useful, but then equating it to social progress, right? Like, you know, we, we, we train people to be innovators. We hold them up on a pedestal. We, we throw uh, buckets of venture capital at them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They get all of this financial and cultural capital um, that they get to squander. You know, we train people to be innovators, uh, but we, you know, we're definitely not training them to be like maintainers as like, you know, uh, Lee Vinsel and Andrew Russell have, have uh, been writing about in their book that's coming out called Innovation Delusion or the Innovators mm-hmm. Delusion. And they've been writing about this idea of maintenance um, as necessary, but also like, let alone do we train people to, th- to think in terms of unmaking? You know, we don't train people to be unmakers. And, uh, you know, innovation is sexy. Maintenance is boring, but unmaking, that's deviant. That, right. that's, that's the real, uh, you know, uh, deviant shit right there. A sicko shit. That's sicko shit. It's How the dare sickos. you, you fucking perv? How dare you want to <laughs> unmake society? We, we are the sickos <laughs> looking in the way. The example of the Amazon warehouse and micro resistance there is a great example of Luddism in action. And the, 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 the great thing, the uplifting thing that we should take away from that as well is that it's, it's not an anomaly. It's not the exception, right? Like that kind of stuff is happening all over the place in mm-hmm. workplaces across different companies and different sectors. There's all this kind of micro resistance and it's been happening for hundreds of years, right? That's, that's that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn pamphlet on sabotage that we talked about um, in the free episode from 1917, where in that pamphlet, she's already going and laying out all kinds of examples that she's heard from workers in restaurants and factories um, about how they've done their own forms of sabotage, even if they're not thinking about it in terms of sabotage, right? What they are doing is sabotage. 
it, it is part of that human spirit that when when you are confronted with these systems of oppression of control these systems of discipline to to find ways to lash out against that the purpose of loveism is to understand the stuff that's already happening and then tie it together as a political program that links that links up these little individual actions into a big collective action with a purpose in different times and different places right Although we know what the ultimate, the ethos of the Luddism is, it can look different, I think, in different places. Like, as you've talked about in your work, if you are in a place that is, like, dominated by surveillance, especially private surveillance, police surveillance, the immediate program of, like, a Luddite there would look different than, like, a Luddite in some, who lives, like, in the backyard of some tech company uh, campus, which would also look different, <laughs> which would also look different. Jeremy asking if uh, eagle terrorism is Luddism. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. How could I forget from the cold opening? Oh, folks, the number one Luddite, the patron saint of Luddism, Reverend Toller from First Reformed. (laughs) (laughs) Talk talk us through that. Talk us through that. That movie is is a movie about this priest he ministers at a small church that is more like an artifact of history he grieves the loss of his son to the um, you know he was in a military family and convinced his son to serve in the war and his son died so that sparked a crisis of faith uh, he has deteriorating health and um, you know he's kind of lost in a drift he comes across a woman named Mary in her in his congregation whose uh, boyfriend husband is is really just doom-pilled you know he's really of the belief that climate change is going to kill us all that plagues are going to kill us all that there's really no way to avoid the coming wave of terror and apocalypse right and presents the priest with hard questions one of my favorite scenes is you know they're sitting after all this and he's like can god forgive us for what we've done to this planet and uh the reverend's like shit (laughs) who knows who knows man (laughs) why are you asking me that so so he has a crisis of faith because of climate change no uh the reverend already had a crisis of faith when his son died and i think he's just been going through the motions clinging on to the church and the belief in god or you know the comfort of routine and it's when confronted with this dude who is then discovered to have like been planning to uh blow himself up and kills himself eventually in an unrelated way, uh, this sparks like a crisis of faith in the guy, in the reverend, right? Because he's like, okay, so what do I do? No feeling like that the world is ending and that uh, maybe God can't forgive us for what we're doing. And, you know, he has a, you know, a debate kind of with uh, Cedric, the entertainer, who's uh, the priest at the neighboring megachurch, who's getting a donation from uh, a massive sort of like energy fossil fuel executive. Uh, there's, a, there's a super fun site nearby for some reason that is like where the boyfriend's uh, funeral happens. But basically the general theme of it is Toller getting more and more disillusioned, more and more angry, and then more and more unable to do something with that anger. You know, he's in the ministry and he can't use the ministry really to galvanize people. And the church across the street, which could, keeps telling him, oh, wait, wait, you're always in the garden of Gethsemane. You know, you're always seeing the bad. There's good things. There's money. There's, there's this nice, glossy church. You know, there's, there's good things to life. It 
culminates with him, you know, deciding to uh, kill himself essentially in a similar attack to what the uh, boyfriend did, but is stopped in like an ambiguous scene about whether he died before it happened or not. But the interesting, the reason why I would see him as like a patron state of Luddism is not so much like the eco-terrorism part, you know, you don't got to do, you don't have to wrap yourself in barbed wire and all that, but um, the agonizing over what is to be done Mm. recognizing that there are things immediately around you which are unjustifiable and persist only because someone doesn't do something about them. And it's not that it's because someone doesn't blow them up, but it is because so people for us make the decision to let things keep happening, right? Let the decisions to let the oil company keep legitimizing itself with the donations. Let the decision to like have that super fun site not really get cleaned up. Have the decision to like send kids off to go to, to dying on wars, right? These are things that similar to our critiques of technology, right? Um, you know, technical systems or political systems and their decisions being made constantly. Who gets to live or die? Who gets to benefit or suffer? Who gets to be oppressed or oppressed? You know, Luddism is also about you don't have to like suffer that in quiet rage and agony and terror, Mm. right? There are paths forward. They require solidarity with other people. They require a recognition of the enemy and they require a decision to unmake as opposed to uh, let something persist perpetually forever. I feel like you are describing our our. We we've got Ethan Hawke double feature here. <laughs> yeah. Is 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 Ethan Hawke like the Luddite actor in chief here? Because because I feel like <laughs> what you are describing is also the Good Lord Bird, John yeah. Brown. Ethan <laughs> yeah. Hawke is John Brown, man. Like like the, like there's so many similarities in this like character assassination of you know someone like John Brown and someone like Ned Blood painting them in you know in history as these raving lunatics uh you know the, these these fringe radicals extremists which for their time they definitely were right, right. But there's a lot of like this kind of historical revisionism as well about like paint, you know, doing this character assassination as a way to completely undermine the politics and purpose of their actions and what they were what they were doing. I, I know that you are big on the Good Lord Bird, as all yeah. of our listeners should be. It's a fucking <laughs> yeah. dope as shit show, um, and I think it really does a great job of also painting John Brown. Who you know, for people that 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 might not know, was a a big abolitionist. Was like literally like freeing slaves. Uh, did raids on plantations and on on Harper's Ferry, this like army arsenal, all for the purpose of uh, anti-slavery, right? Like radical anti-slavery. Um, you know, in in the way that like you know, we can kind of think about something like the Underground Railroad that was like spiriting away. Um, slaves to the to the north so that they could be free as one hand kind of uh, working in solidarity with the more like direct action of right. someone John Brown. It is not a coincidence that uh, some of the more contentious figures in history are controversial, right? Are individuals who uh, take like a very clear moral line and and insist that like all others on it or on the other side of it are in the wrong. In some level, right, we all understand that the technical system we have today is a fundamentally immoral and exploitative and harmful system, right? 
To have technological civilization we have today, to have the innovation we have today, we have child slavery across large swaths of the world, right? We have uh, labor in a miserating condition. Uh, we have underpayment. We have exploitation. We have unsafe working conditions. We have assault. We have violence. We have sexual violence. We have all sorts of harms that we would individually oppose, but abstractly, they become these macro objects, right? That are inconceivable just because of the scale of them and the distance from us, right? The question then becomes like, what does it look like to oppose that? You know, there are small immediate steps people can do, whether it's not using the servant apps, whether it's like finding alternatives to the servant apps, for example, like Uber and Lyft, like taxis, you know, uh, there, there are things people can do, which is like consciously choosing good services of lower quality, even because of the fact that they are not trading in slave labor and exploitation or conflict, right? But all of those are still small individual choices. What, you know, what's going to get the goods is decisions to work with one another to like actually step on the neck of a machine instead of, you know, having our necks being stepped on, whether that looks like some actual breaking of a machine or whether that looks like a, you know, a commitment to undermining arguments from people who are defending a machine, whether that means abandoning myths, whether that means organizing, whether that means uh, intervening politically. There are a diversity of tactics, but they all have to be premised on the idea that together, right, we should be the ones who like bring down this wall, you know, between us and the world that we want, and which is a world without uh, this, you know, exploitation and suffering so that a few people can um, make huge returns as partners at Benchmark and Sequoia um, and SoftBank. I don't want to kink shame anyone, but if you do like having your neck stepped on, please consider having <laughs> it done by an actual human being and not a robot. And, and please make sure you pay them and you pay them well. Not by the <laughs> the embodiment of capital. <laughs> yeah, not by you know, the, the, the purpose as well of like breaking the machine, that is a way of, you know, attacking and dethroning these structures, right? It's it's not about, again, like Luddism is not some like vulgar materialism where I, I just want to break this machine for the sake of it. Um, no, like breaking the machine is itself this like symbolic and material act that is targeting and attacking these structures, whether it is, you know, structures of, of exploitation and extraction um, wrapped up in industrial capitalism or structures of exploitation and extraction wrapped up in slavery capitalism, right? Like, like I feel like this is, this is the greatest crossover moment right here is uh, Ned Ludd and John Brown. We need Ethan Hawke to play Ned Ludd in a movie. We, we, we're, we're, yes. our, our, the Patreon money is now going towards financing <laughs> a uh, Ethan Hawke starring in a, uh, a Ned Ludd, General Ludd movie. Let's write the script and then give it to him, man. He put <laughs> some of his own money behind uh, Good Lord Bird, you know? I don't know. I, I, I genuinely appreciate these uh, depictions of characters who are like locked in moral quandaries, right? And where there's like a very righteous anger to them. Like with Good Lord Bird, right? Most depictions of abolitionists and this John Brown, as we've talked about with Luddites and Ludd are just like insane, right? They're insane. And here it was more so like, clearly he is right. Clearly, objectively, he is right that slavery is like an, an abhorrent, immoral fact of the union at the time, right? And that any step to expand it is horrible. And then the question then becomes like, is it just that he is way too far out of you know left field for the times? Or is it because he 
is putting it forward in a way that's unappealing because of how intensely religious he is, that he seems crazy? Uh, What is it that is responsible for the divide between what we know is right, which is like slavery is an abhorrent sin, and like this man screaming like a lunatic Bible verses as he kills people? (laughs) (laughs) What's it's because he he didn't go through the right procedures, Ed. You know, Uh, the (laughs) process, baby. It's all about process. Yeah, actually, if he had run for Congress, you know, that would be very different. My favorite little tidbits is that he had uh, he had like a secret constitution that he wanted to enact in the new country. And in the constitution, there was no Senate. And I was like, yeah, dude, of course. We, <laughs> look, one thing we got to do, we got to unmake the Senate. The Senate is our enemy. Abolish the constitution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but really. <laughs> but, but, but for real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like the as an example, the Senate is like an old guard institution that whose existence, mere existence, is to like make sure that proposals and reforms can get sufficiently watered down, right? And similarly, right, always be on the lookout for institutions and processes and arrangements that exist simply to water things down. Is there some internal bureaucratic process that just exists for people to like? Are you sure? Like, are you really sure you want to do this? You know, is there some sort of larger social, political, economic um, dance that we go through where it it it's, exists mainly to to water down proposals and reforms and get the population to be like, are you really sure you want to do this? Because usually when there's like a, a double, triple, quadruple ask, are you really sure? It's not for your sake, right? Mm-hmm. It is for the sake of the system as a safety valve to ensure that you don't go off the rails, but to go off the rails is to go out of the bounds in which the system is stable. And and that ask of, are you sure you really want to do this is also a kind of a masked threat as well. Yeah, it's, it's like a gun. Right? Like, so. like, yeah, it's like, it, it's more said like, are you sure you want to do this? Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> That's the tone of it. Last chance. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening all over this land. I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a So talking about Luddism in action, we haven't done a reading series in quite a while. And there's a, a great essay from Processed World, which was this Bay Area magazine from the, the 1980s, um, ran up from like the early 80s to the early 90s. It was just like this independent magazine that served as this kind of forum um, for radical and malcontent workers um, in the early days of the IT revolution, right? It was like this place where full of sardonic and ironic commentary, almost ahead of its time in some ways um, on Silicon Valley, but written by the very people working in the computer industry and not only programmers, but also working as um, secretaries, working as service workers, right? Working within these, this kind of the heart of Silicon Valley, you know, as, as the historian Steve Wright uh, framed process world, he said it offered lengthy analysis of, quote, the labor process, culture, and behaviors. In other words, the class composition of employees engaged with work with information and information technology. The issues, the back issues of process world, there's been some great kind of stuff written about process world 
Um, Jacob Silverman, who's a writer, uh, has, has wrote a great essay in The Baffler, which is almost this, which in some ways is the kind of like taking on the mantle of something like Process World in terms of its tone and its politics. But Jacob Silverman wrote this great essay in The Baffler a few years ago, um, kind of a retrospective on Process World. But there's a, a, a awesome essay in it from I think 1984, it's like issue five, called Sabotage, the ultimate video game. And it's written by this, this anonymous writer who goes by the, the pen name of Gidget Digit, but she's a, she's, she's a worker in a, an unnamed tech company. And I also wanna really quick give credit to Gavin Mueller, um, who I found this essay from Process World in Gavin Mueller's book that's coming out next March called Breaking Things at Work, which is a fantastic um, kind of historical materialist analysis of the politics of Luddism going from the origins of it and, you know, those 1811, 1812 uh, movements um, and tracing up the kind of like actions and debates on the shop um, within the working class of these, these kind of Luddish actions and debates through towards the contemporary time. Um, we will definitely be, when when Gavin's book comes out, we will definitely be having him on to, to mm-hmm. talk more about it. But I found this essay um, in Process World, which I also feel like is the exactly, it's like exactly the place where we would be writing today if it were right. still around. <laughs> um, like, like TMK could have easily been the house podcast for Process World. Yeah, we could have um, some ads from Process World. It'd be good. Process World is a proud sponsor of this machine kids. So this this essay called Sabotage the Ultimate Video Game, and I'll throw you know links to all this in the episode description, of course, but it's it's a great celebration of sabotage but also a a kind of an analysis and a commentary about how this kind of sabotage, the kind of micro resistance we talked about in like the Amazon warehouses was actually going on within the early days of Silicon Valley, within these these computer companies and the computer industry. And at the, the very beginning of this essay starts, what office worker hasn't thought of dousing the keyboard of her word processor with a cup of steaming coffee, hurling the mo- her modular telephone headset through the plate glass window or her supervisor's cubicle, or torching up the stack of input forms waiting in her inbox with a misplaced cigarette? The impulse to sabotage the work environment is probably as old as wage labor itself, perhaps older. I like this already because fire. <laughs> because I, I like the I like the the fantasy of it, right? It's like it, it, it does it taps into this thing. Like who hasn't had a job? You know, like I remember like my first jobs when I was in high school, working at McDonald's and then Pizza Hut, and having these same exact fantasies running mm-hmm. through my head for my entire shift. Yep. Whenever I worked in food service, I was like, what if I just destroyed the, the machine here? What if I just destroyed the stove <laughs> or unplugged it? What would happen if I unplugged the stove and pretended like it just stopped working for the rest of the day? And so Gidget Digit goes on to say, 
in a really like prescient way, um, quote, the current upsurge in the use of computerized business machines has added fuel to the fire, so to speak. Word processors, remote terminals, data phones, and high-speed printers are only a few of the new breakable gadgets that are coming to dominate the modern office. Designed for control and service, they often appear as the immediate source of our frustration. Damaging them is a quick way to vent anger or to gain a few minutes of downtime. I mean, right there already, right? Like the very, like the purposes of sabotage have been the same since the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. Like throw a wrench in the gears, get a few minutes of downtime, just take out some anger, right? I'm thinking about the the famous scene in Office Space where they, you know, they take the fax machine uh, or the printer or whatever, like out (laughs) to the field and they're just fucking like, while damn, it feels good to be a gangster is playing, just fucking bashing that shit with a hammer stomping on it with their boots like just this just this moment of like pure luddite catharsis and it's so funny that you and jeremy said that at the same exact time <laughs> <laughs> literally the, the second the words remember came out of your mouth they were all typed up by jeremy who typed up remember the producer from office (laughs) (laughs) yeah no there's uh there's really good it's um you know one of my favorite i think like running through this essay i love how constantly it weaves together fantasies to and and feelings that we all share to like bring you into you know, a deeper conception or a a way to oppose this, right? Like when she goes on to say, uh, sabotage is more than an inescapable desire to bash calculators. It is neither a simple manifestation of machine hatred, nor is it a new phenomenon that has appeared only with the introduction of computer technology. Its forms are largely shaped by the setting in which they take place. The sabotage of new office technology takes place within the larger context of the modern office, a context which includes working conditions, conflict between management and workers, dramatic changes in the work process itself, and finally, relationships between clerical workers themselves, right? This is getting back to what we were talking about with the Luddites, right? The Luddites, you know, the the stocking frames had been around, you know, at that point for almost 300 years. It wasn't that they were against stocking frames, right? There were new contexts that emerged in which the people who owned the stocking frames were now accelerating the rate at which they were putting people out of work while doing nothing and collecting money and using that to then further again accelerate the rate at which they're putting people out of work. Those new contexts led to these new fantasies and and actions uh, of sabotage, right? Much in the way that office technology didn't exist, uh, has existed or had existed for a while at this point, um, and that it was the new context and arrangements for them, uh, which were to create dehumanizing uh, repetitive labor, you know, um, you know, these things draining at the soul, doing, you know, all sorts of psychic damage to the workers, you know, eventually, you know, ran up into a point. It's like what, uh, you know, David Graper would talk about in uh, Bullshit Jobs, where he was like, you know, there is an immense amount of psychic damage that's done to the human soul because we have so many jobs that literally don't need to exist. And and the people uh, we, working those jobs know they don't need yeah, to exist. Yeah, right. You know, how... Um, what, what is, what does that do to a person where they know one, that the job they know doesn't need to exist, but two, they have to do it to make ends meet and to survive. So three, they have to develop all these strategies to make it seem like it's useful. And then four, they have to also 
be treated by their boss as if like, okay, this work is very important and you are either doing it or not doing it, or, you know, entering a new game uh, where there's new levels of resentment, new technologies that are being used that they might also have uh, new uh, relationships or resentments or hangups about. Um, all of this culminating into what, you know, back then would have been manifested as sabotage. And here, I mean, there are plenty of ways to do sabotage, right? If you work at a company whose um, main purpose is to translate uh, bureaucratic files from French to German, right? As one of his... Uh, one of the fun examples he proposed in that book was uh, that's a useless job, but there's easy ways to sabotage it. Right. But there are also mm -hmm. easy ways to get found out for sabotaging it. And so it's, it's like, you know, a, a constant dance trying to figure out what, where you could it's do antagonism. It's class antagonism. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, and it has to, and, and it, it necessarily uh, like necessarily manifest in terms of a class struggle. Yeah, um, that's what PyCon was uh, uh, was talking about in the uh, in the book review, uh, asking, "Is it okay to be a Luddite?" You know, our man was saying that yes, it is, and also it's, you know, there's a class. There are things that called classes, and they're at war, and Luddism is in one way or another uh, a reflection of that reality. Exactly, exactly. It is a manifestation of class antagonism, but it's an antagonism that is completely asymmetrical, right? Like capital's antagonism to labor is so much more overpowered than labor's antagonism to capital, right? But like, but the, the purpose there is that capital's whole, uh, whole like, like motivation is to wipe out the antagonism, to wipe out the struggle. Um, any act of resistance, any act of struggle or sabotage is an act too much for capital to tolerate. Right. And, and this is, you know, it's the, the essay, uh, she continues, uh, the growth and bureaucratization of the information handling needs of modern corporations and governments has changed the small personal office into huge organizations complete with complex hierarchies and explicitly defined work relations. No one is exempt from being situated in the organizational chart. The myriad of titles and grades tends to inhibit a sense of common experience since everyone else's situation seems slightly different from one's own. Each spot on the hierarchy has its privileges and implied power over those below it and its requirements of subordination to those above. This is exactly it, right? Like, and you know, you 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 mentioned Graeber's Utopia of Rules, which that that is the right text for this uh, for this passage as well. We're talking about the ways in which bureaucracy is its own technology. It's a technology of organization which is created in order to atomize and individualize uh, workers to isolate them within these kinds of like um, seemingly rational systems of management uh, to stymie their ability to you know it's all like this kind of like need to know you know you only know what happens in your own little isolated pocket of the bureaucracy everything else around you is is this like black box that's just crushing right. in upon you she talked about for like imagining the office place right you know thinking about how you know, liberal businessmen, futurists, and, and computer enthusiasts wanted one type of office right that would reduce regimentation at work. And they argued remote terminals will allow people to do their work in their homes at their own speeds. Uh, 
which also which, kind of reminds me of re- we, remote yeah, work. Which is that, that's, that's the prescient part. Like that's the reality yeah. that we're living now. But contrary to these like futurist visions of like the liberation of work through remote work, where you mm-hmm. can do it in your own comfortable surroundings at your own speeds, mm-hmm. that is that, that is a fucking fantasy compared to how this stuff is manifesting right now. Right. And she has her eye on the fucking prize because she, you know, goes on to say that, you know, while this vision has serious flaws in itself, it is unlikely that management will relinquish control over the work process. In fact, rather than freeing clerks from the gaze of their supervisors, management statistics programs that many new systems provide will allow for careful scrutiny of each worker's output, regardless of where the work is done. Decentralization, assuming it happens at all, will more likely bring about the reintroduction of piecework while breaking down the type of work cultures discussed above that contribute to the low productivity of office workers, which, so that an interesting point, right? That maybe productivity will increase, but so will the uh, surveillance, which is something that we're recognizing. I mean, decentralizing uh, school attendance, for example, results in the introduction of surveillance systems that watch your fucking eyeballs to make sure you're not cheating, right? Mm-hmm. Insane. Uh, the decentralization of workspaces, which should be allowed to free up workers in various industries to work from home and, 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 you know, maybe enjoy themselves a little bit more instead being used one as rationale for doing wage control. Right. And now saying that we're just going to tie your wage to the city that you live in, instead of like us actually paying you a wage to attract you to work for us, but also being used to justify like, a logging into some program and logging your hours and surveilling yourself and checking in yourself and justifying the time you spend away from the office, right? Um, yeah, collecting and- massive amounts of data, keystroke logging, random screenshots to then produce these these uh, productivity scores, right? Which right. think used to enact forms of micromanagement that. Friedrich Taylor himself could never have imagined as possible and would be fucking like, just, just not, he'd not, he'd be, yeah, he'd be <laughs> orgasm. He'd be cream in his pants at, at the, at the realization of the world that we live in right now. And, and, you know, it's like, why was, uh, someone like Gidget Digit, the author of this essay, why was her analysis of the future of these technologies so much more correct than the uh, futurist and computer enthusiast that she's talking about? Is it is it because she had uh, a crystal ball and 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 could see into the future? Uh, no, it's it's because she understood that wrapped up in these technologies are power dynamics, our power relationships, our class antagonisms. Right. You can't get away from them. You just, no matter how much you, you know, close your eyes and tap your, your heels together to imagine a world in which uh, workers are, as these enthusiasts, uh, enthusiasts do, where workers are uh, working more but freer. I mean, you can't really do that without undermining the real reasons or the real structures or the real relationships between workers and bosses and production uh, that structure more than our imaginations, that structure the possibilities, right? We can all 
will or you know close our eyes and wish as hard as possible for technology to arrive that um, allows each worker on, for example, factory floor to control production and 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 be the manager themselves instead of having a a crust of managers uh, that act more like overseers, right? But what's the reality? Well, the reality is determined by the context, as uh, Gidget talked about, right? The reality is determined by all right, who would control development and implementation of technology, who's going to finance it, who's going to benefit from it, who's in any position to make decisions about where it goes, how it goes, who uses it, how it's used, when it's implemented. It's certainly not mm-hmm. the workers in any way, shape, or form. If it's the bosses, then what are their interests? Their interests are not for the workers to have more autonomy. It's for them to have more autonomy over the workers so that the production uh, output can be more in line with whatever didacts they're panted down from uh, from top down. That's right. That's, you know, the, the mistake of those who would throw around the label of Luddite in a derogatory way, the mistake of these futurists who are proven wrong and wrong again and again is to look at the technology itself as if it is as if it exists only in and of itself right and not to ask these critical questions about the ways that like uh, you know technologies emerge out of certain conditions you know certain milieus social political economic and they're also plugged into already existing organizations this is the bureaucracy that mm-hmm. gidget's talking about that graber's talking about right like you know by these technologies don't disrupt the bureaucracy they emerge out of the bureaucracy to then serve the ends of the bureaucracy right i think we need to then be thinking about okay so the people who are the loudest or the most in position to establish and maintain and preserve technical systems are usually doing it at the, in their own interest, right? So the logical thing is if the people who are in a position, in an actual position to change a technical system are just going to end up doing maintenance or expansion and perpetuation of, uh, of that system, then does the work not call for unmaking these systems, right? Immediately as uh, as the next logical step, not simply to uh, make laws where workers have like, you know, a seat on the board or where work, where the managers have to be former workers, but making decisions about uh, getting rid of some of those relationships in, entirely, right? Uh, getting rid of managers, uh, getting rid of the you know, abilities that a board has or the board entirely. I mean, getting rid of practices and institutions and systems that, as long as they exist, are premised on the class antagonism that, you know, it sits at the center of why certain technical systems emerge uh, that are in, that feel inescapable, right? And, dem- and can only allow us enough room to breathe for small, small acts of resistance as we're trying to survive and make ends meet. Yeah, I mean, implicit in the like techno-utopianism of the futurists or the uh, innovation fetish of these uh, corporate executives Implicit in that is a strong, unwavering faith that that they will be the ones liberated by the technology, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 they will in that they will reap the benefits of these technologies at the sake of all the other people who will be uh, disrupted and dominated by those technologies. Of course, they never go, they never make that explicit because that would be saying the quiet part loud, but that is always, (laughs) that is always 
just beneath the surface in these kinds of proclamations. And, uh, you know, Gidget goes on to, to talk about how one might wonder why government and business are pursuing computerization with such fervor, especially if the technology is so vulnerable. Speed and efficiency, read increased productivity, are some of the standard reasons given in response to this question. Certainly more irrational elements also come into play. There seems to be an absolute mania for this technology, regardless of whether it pays off in higher profits or productivity. Many business execs assume it will, even though there have been no thorough investigations into this question. It, yeah, on one hand, it's that blind faith that these technologies will lead to higher profits and productivity. Um, on, on the other hand, as well, and something that you know Gidget gets at in this essay is that sometimes profits and productivity are not actually the purpose of these technologies. It's about power. It's about yeah. discipline. Right. It's about how do you enact more control over labor? How do you de-skill labor? How do you take the how do you take the power and autonomy out of the hands of labor? Um, even if that comes at the sake of higher profits and higher productivity, we can see that with countless examples of technologies. Yeah, that's why that's one of the big reasons why the innovation myth is such a dangerous one. It provides not only does it in the immediate sense provide cover for the fact that a lot of technological development is not concerned with improving uh, things, but about maintaining power, surveillance or control regimentation. Right. But it also then festers this conception in the wider in the public imagination about entrepreneurs, about technologists, about uh, executives and businessmen, this idea that um, they are all praying at the altar of innovation and thus their intentions, their, their, their vision, it is all about improving production so that we all can live in the garden of capitalism. You know, when the reality is that's not it. Uh, but it is a lie that is allowed to persist in uh, uh, that we all entertain because it is much more comfortable than confronting the fact that some people simply sit down and decide a full knowledge of the suffering and the misery that goes into a system they have that they're just going to make a lot of fucking money. You know, mm -hmm. some people decide that they're going to instead. Uh, they're they're going to make a lot of money and they're going to figure out how to make people prevent people from undermining that money. They're going to figure out how to prevent workers from undermining the money. They're going to figure out how to prevent investors from figuring out how shitty the model is so that they can undermine the money. They're going to prevent regulators from figuring out. Yeah, they, you know, video game companies, gig companies, you know, uh, CD Projekt Red, Uber, Lyft, you know, DoorDash, mm -hmm. places that ring workers out to try and develop technical systems that obscure the violence and the exploitation being done on all sides, right? Um, this is, you know, to replace the innovation fetishism. We're going to coin it. We're going to coin this term. Uh, you know, Marx had commodity fetishism. We'll have innovation fetishism. <laughs> um, it will develop a whole abstract theory to it. We'll, we'll get into really fucking messy fights with leftists <laughs> about it. That's going to be good. Um, you know, this is like a deep, deep, deep delusion, uh, a mind-numbingly stupid and frustrating one. This idea that uh, by simply touching technology, by simply dealing with technology, by simply putting technology before a company, you are now 
removed from questions of power and class antagonism and domination. You are simply working for the benefit of productivity and the market and humanity, right? When Mm-hmm. It's not that at all. There's no evidence of that. And every single time we're confronted with the fact that there's no evidence for it. And, but the myth is so powerful that it just keeps humming along, right? Right. And and part of the, the power of that myth is to uh, take us out of the realm of history and politics as well, right? To make us feel like, you know, as the constant mantra from these Silicon Valley ghouls is that like, you know, everything has changed and nothing will ever be the same. And that's just not the case at all. But the purpose of there is to disconnect us from a history, to disconnect us from the fact that like these attitudes have been uh, replaying themselves again and again, that people have been responding um, to these systems and technologies and forms of organization um, in the same ways. To go back to Gidget's essay, she writes, quote, these visions of computer utopia have come about in response to the widespread bad attitude that many people have toward these smart machines. When computers were first introduced for such things as billings and phone lists, people's immediate response was one of resentment at what they perceived as a loss in power. Who hasn't had the experience of battling an infallible computer that kept charging you for the same shirt, lost all your college records, or disconnected your phone call for the fourth time? I know we sure fucking have. (laughs) Um, She goes on, the point here is not that computers don't work, but that this new technology provides authorities with a shield for their power. The frustration and powerlessness that people feel can conveniently be blamed on computer error. I feel like when I read this essay recently, I was like, holy shit, like my whole career has just been updating and rewriting this one like four page essay. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but that's the, that's why we do this. It's so that we you know, you see it when someone puts it so clearly um, and synthesizes and, and, and crystallizes what a lot of us feel in isolation and try to also confirm with each other, but is a universal feeling, a universal antipathy towards the way that things are and an understanding that they, it's wrong, right? Um, <laughs> Even something wrong. like the tech lash is not new, right? Like right. she's talking mm-hmm. about, this is like in the early 80s, you know, people had bad, like widespread bad attitudes and resentment towards these smart machines, right? Right. Like even that's not new. You know, it's okay to be a Luddite, a Luddite. In fact, even if, you know what, um, if you cannot pronounce it, yeah, it's obligatory. It's not even okay, it's obligatory. (laughs) It's obligatory. We accept you even if you, like me, uh, a shill for the Luddite conspiracy cannot pronounce it properly you know i I oscillate (laughs) between luddite and ludite whatever you want join it take the oath um that you that we can't talk about on air because it's a secret oath (laughs) (laughs) you know one thing i thought was interesting one i like um you know one of my favorite writers uh, malcolm harris has a book two books uh, that are really great um shit is fucked up and bullshit um and then um kids these the, days yes exactly kids these days and um you know one thing that he said a while ago that really stuck with me was this idea that you know people should figure out you know what they see with the world that's wrong and make a plan on how to act on it and just go out 
in the woods or out somewhere where you leave behind your electronic devices and just talk with each other. That doesn't mean you're going to like fucking blow some shit up, but it does mean that you want to have a space with each other to actually say, um, we want to do something or we want to figure out what needs to be done in terms of organizing, in terms of resistance, in terms of helping other people. And, um, we want to be able to hold each other to that. And that, you know, can be your, you can have, you can have uh, secret oaths are not only for like these <laughs> real crazy groups. They can also just be for a group of people who want to hold each other to a promise that they want to help one another. I mean, the, the people in power do sure do fucking have their own secret oaths. Yeah. You know, phones and every single and- <laughs> motherfucker in the black book, all of them, <laughs> you know, do not ever uh in an epstein's black book i should say um you know they all have their own secret rituals they all have their own clubs they all have their secret groups uh they i don't see any reason why you shouldn't you know um who gives a fuck you know and in fact you should because we are you know perpetually surveilled and while we don't have the capabilities at this point or in any time in the foreseeable future to use most of that against you it is important to also remember that everything is stored seemingly in perpetuity you know but what i like about malcolm's point as well is that the point there is that there's strength and solidarity and you yes. need to create spaces to build solidarity mm-hmm. Because we are so atomized, we're so individualized, mm-hmm. and that's by design, right? Yeah. Because capital knows that an organized uh, labor movement, solidarity amongst the working class is the most dangerous thing in the world to capital. And so they work hard to, through bureaucracy, through militancy, uh, you know, they work hard to make that seem like it's an impossibility. The idea like as a basic thing, the idea that workers should not have a collective group to decide what happens in their fucking workplace where they spend a vast majority of their time or energy and effort pulling out wages so that they can earn, like earn a living. The idea that that's not to be uh, pursued or allowed and then is anathema for reasons is like a clear example of something where it's like an objective good constantly propagandized as a evil because it's not simply that a union will improve wages and reduce uh, profit margins, but then a union might get funny ideas in its head about who should run the company. A union might get funny ideas in its head about safety conditions. A union might get in its head funny ideas about where dividends should go, right? Who should Mm -hmm. make serious decisions that have effects on power. And and you don't even want to get in those battles uh, let alone uh, have the workers entertain them. So just so just gut the first step, which is the union, right? Right. And you know, Gidget ends her essay in the in, in the most perfect way possible. She says, "Quote: All of these tendencies—the pranks, stealing, and destruction in offices, strikes and occupations by computer workers, and spectacular bombing and arson attacks by left-wing groups—imply a common desire to resist changes that are being introduced without our consent. The technology that has been developed to maintain profits and existing institutions of social control." is extremely vulnerable to sabotage and subversion, especially in this transition period. If we are to avoid an alienated electronic version of capitalism in which control is subtle but absolute, we will need to extend the subversion of machines and work process to an all-out attack on the social relations that make them possible. Uh, in, In response to that, 
a, a reader of Process World wrote a letter to the editor um, saying, quote, I will leave it to the theoreticians to argue about the dialectical nuances of sabotage. Basically, there is one overwhelming reason to do it. It makes you feel good. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go, right? Like uh-huh. that is... You know, that goes back to that scene in Office Space, the smashing Mm -hmm. of the fax machine, is that there is, of course, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of politics and a lot of purpose built up in, uh, you know, subverting the machines and work processes as a way of attacking the social relations that they materialize. But at the same time, there is a lot of catharsis and a lot of just uh, emotional reasons to do it right because it does make you feel good to feel as if you are uh gaining back some of your autonomy you're gaining back some of your dignity you're gaining back some of your ability to strike out lash out against the things that want to put you in a box that want to put a straight jacket on you that want to atomize you from your your fellow uh people from the working class from uh, any kind of vision of a better world, of a world that's organized in a different way for different purposes. Mm. We'll get there together with the hammer of Ned Ludd himself and the trumpet of John Brown. I'm turning into He-Man over here. (laughs) Well, somebody has to do something. On that note, I think that will bring us to an end uh, for for this TMK premium episode for this week. Thank you all for subscribing. And um, we will see you next week with a very exciting interview and conversation with Vina Dubal, where we were going to get much further into this question of, 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 of labor movements, of unions um, for worker power. So we will see you all uh, in that episode later.